Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. Today, we're talking about addiction, and we're not talking about it in just a drug and alcohol context. I want you guys to think bigger. I want you to really take a look at at what you're suffering with and, and what is problematic in your life. I'm currently reading Russell Brand's book called Recovery, and a couple of things in here really stuck out to me. Um... Addiction is when natural biological imperatives like the need for food, sex, relaxation, or status become prioritized to the point of destructiveness. Wow, right? So when we're prioritizing anything in our life to the point of destructiveness, and this can be externally destructive, it can be destroying relationships, it can be internally destructive to our own sense of self, to our dreams, to our hopes, and that is addiction. That is what we are suffering with. And if you think it's just drugs and alcohol and you think it's just horrible things that horrible people do, then that is another form of addiction, which we talk about today on this podcast. So today's guest is Dr. Howard Wetzman. He is an addiction psychologist, or psychiatrist, pardon me. He's an MD, and he has really come to some some personal truths and some some theories and hypotheses in his practice around addiction that are very very powerful one of his goals is to end addiction in the united states or to end the suffering from it um, in the next 30 years we talk about what is recovery what is sobriety what does it mean to be sober versus abstinent Um, addiction is not just drugs and alcohol, everyone. I want you all to get that through our collective and societal heads, that addiction is a problem that is running rampant through all of our lives in some, some way, shape, or form. Also, generationally, genetically, what does addiction mean? Where does it start? It wasn't that first taste of beer. It's not then. It's before that. And we cover all of this. And so I'm so grateful Dr. Howard Wetzman joined us. You can follow him on Twitter, addictiondocmd, and also on medium.com. He has a channel. And his website is genedsystems.com. So really great episode, you guys. And I hope you get a chance to listen, share this with everyone. Um, his, his comments toward, especially toward the end of the hour are very, very powerful and, and can bring hope and comfort to anyone who is struggling in any area of their lives. So thank you all for listening. And here's Dr. Howard Wetzman. Hi, and welcome to the same 24 hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, the year of no nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hello.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm very excited about our guest today. Dr. Dr. Howard Wetzman is here. He's an addiction psychiatrist who has over 25 years of experience in this area and very, very excited to talk with him today. So welcome, Dr. Wetzman. Thanks, Merida. Everybody calls me Howard. Okay. Thank you, Howard. And are your puppies going to make an appearance today? They might. (laughs) Well, there's, okay, good. There's only there's only one actually. Oh, uh, sorry. The, the, the second one uh, died just a few months ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Maybe we'll get to see one. All right. So this is a big topic, and I love your take on it. And it when I listened to part of your series on YouTube, which we can talk about, um, I was kind of blown away because I'm 4.25 years sober, <laughs> and I thought it was just a matter of quitting alcohol. I thought, you know, if I just get sober, then everything will be fine. And I realized that you made a distinction in somewhere about sober sober versus abstinent. And I thought that was really powerful. So let's kind of start at the beginning with your training and medical school and what that taught you about addiction or what it didn't teach you. Nothing. And kind of go Nothing. from there because it's kind of like nutrition, right? When you talk to a doctor about, oh, what did you learn in medical yeah. school about nutrition? Nothing, right? <laughs> well, the first thing I learned, <clears throat> the first thing I learned about addiction in medical school was uh, in my first year, um, someone came and gave a lecture and literally said these words, if you find an alcoholic in your practice, kick him out because you can't help him and he'll only break your heart. Oh, that was literally all I learned pretty wow. much the first two years of medical school. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's and a great I've gone start. Out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you would think it would. And, and it actually went downhill from there. <laughs> After you kick them out, then you tell everyone else to not let them in, right? I mean, just, yeah, right. wow. <clears throat> I have no idea that the guy who told us, that, I don't even remember who it was. It, he, he could have been alcoholic himself. And, you know, I mean, right. who knows uh, what, what his motivation for saying that was. But at the time when I started medical school, uh, there were still people teaching me who were learning themselves before the AMA actually accepted that alcoholism was a disease that was in the 50s so i got to medical school in 1981 there were a lot of people who had who were teaching me who had been practicing 30 40 years who basically went to school at a time when the ama said alcoholism and addiction are not illnesses and outside the purview of physicians so mm-hmm. They were just teaching me what they had learned. Right. And I like I, I like to not think that I have a disease. <laughs> and I, like, I really, str- I don't like the term alcoholic for myself. And, and but mm-hmm. the more I'm learning about recovery is maybe I need to get over myself and, um, you know, work through the fact that I can be abstinent, but not actually sober, that there's a lot more layers to addiction. There's a lot of different kinds of addiction. Like we think it's drugs and alcohol only, right? We think as a society, oh, I don't have an addiction problem because I don't drink or I don't do drugs. So can you speak to what sobriety is, what recovery actually is, and, and how it kind of ties into what the work you do? So, well, the, the word addiction is very helpful to me. 
And I also don't use alcoholic, alcoholism, cocaine addict. I, I don't use terms that are that limit people to a specific reward. Mm. Because the idea of addiction to me, and I, I do use the term illness and uh, uh, disease, and that is, I use that in a very specific um, definitional set. So the, the, the medical definition of illness or disease is the lack of function or the lack of normal function of an organ or system of the body. So what that tells me is that it's physical. And most of the time, most of my life, professional life, and before professional life, most of my life, everyone around me said that anyone with addiction just had a problem of will, or they were lazy, or they were stupid, or they were bad, or they were mean. There was nothing about it that was physical. And as a physician, um, even uh, my peers, I see everybody jumping to the psychological and the, the human cortex and the bad thinking as the whole cause of this. And um, I, it's helpful to me to understand addiction as a primary uh, difficulty in functioning of one area of the brain. And that gives me a target and has helped me help other people because, I mean, I've, I've seen lots of people who have gone to five, six, 10 rehabs. And then when they finally look at their genetics or they finally discuss it in terms of biology, they go, wait, it wasn't my fault. And all they learned in 10 rehabs was it's my fault and I have to change. And now it's, oh my God. And then the shame goes away and they get better because shame actually makes us worse. So where does so, that come from? Where did we start blaming the individual? Where does that come oh, from? Oh, the story of addiction is so old. I mean, you can go back to the you can go back to the Old Testament and, and right. Psalms and, and and see some stuff. But but for us here in America, if you just look back a hundred years ago, when we were having our experiment with prohibition, um, there was a huge change. You know, before the early 1900s there was actually a whole group of doctors who were treating addiction with medications and studying addiction. They had their own medical journal, very much like addictionologists do today. And they were completely wiped out by a political change in the country where we went from seeing addiction as an illness to seeing it as just a set of bad behaviors. And mm -hmm. we've had this hundred year experiment in punishing people out of addiction. And it just wasn't that way before. And, and what was, I mean, the that. motive behind that, right? I mean, you look at what was the motive <laughs> behind it and, and people, I mean, racism and mostly people, racism and yeah. yeah. People and, wanting and to lower anti-immigrant sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And then we just accept it. Like, you know, you're a sinner. <laughs> yeah. You need to correct your behavior. And that's how it's, it's always been. And, and even now, and I like the, how you said, I don't like to limit um, the illness to a reward, like alcoholic. I think that's really, I like that a lot because I, I can quit drinking and then I'm just eating cheeseburgers and pizza. <laughs> It just, it just jumps. So what am I then? A, a, a pizza-holic, I guess. Um, let's talk a little bit about the neurobiology. 
of addiction and, and, and what you speak about, about dopamine, about how we're we, genetics and, and phenotypes and all. I like the whole way you lay it out. I think it, it really simplifies it. So maybe we can, we can go there now. Well, let's start with the, what most people say to me when I explain it the first time is they say, great, can I cut that part out of my head? Can we do a surgery and just have remove it? And the most important thing to understand about what I'm going to say is no, because everything I'm going to say is normal. This isn't, people don't have addiction because there's something wrong with them that not, it's not wrong with anyone else necessarily, or there's a part there that's, that other people don't have. It's a, a loss of function of a normal part. And then our response in addiction is really what would happen to every human being if we stop that part from functioning. And it's, and in, it happens because of evolution and because it's kept us alive. So what we look at and say, oh, that's addiction. That's terrible. That's bad. That's killing people. The only reason that humans can react that way is because it has kept us alive for millions of years. Not only us, but mammals. It's been keeping mammals alive for a hundred million years. And so that we is, should thank it. A, We're like, yes, thank you. Right. Yes, it's kept don't, us Don't alive. get rid of it. <laughs> Let's yeah. keep it. Don't get rid yeah. of it. It's, it's necessary. And if we look at this tiny little reward center of the brain, it was not designed to enjoy cocaine. It was designed to, to get us to come in out of the rain. It was designed to create a lasting pair bond. It was designed to, um, uh, you know, just um, make us eat good food that's nutritionally um, healthy for us. All these things that it did in evolutionary time. And if we got rid of it, we'd all just not get up in the morning. Right. Dopamine, this reward chemical that works in the midbrain, is the only reason we do anything twice. It's, I know <laughs> people are going to say, I don't want to believe this, but it's why we fall in love. It's wow. why we have a best friend. It's why we have a favorite color. It's why we enjoy anything. And what happens for people who are born with addiction, and I know there are people are going to say, how can you be born with addiction? Well, <clears throat> I'm convinced. Um, if you define addiction as drugs and alcohol, obviously you can't be born with addiction. <coughs> Excuse me. But if you define it as an illness of the brain, well, there's the puppy. <laughs> if you define it as an illness of the brain, then you, um, you can see the pathology before the person ever picks up a drug or alcohol. And what they've picked up before that are all the things that cause dopamine release because we don't have enough dopamine. And if you look at the things that people have said cause dopamine release, like making someone else smile, being the center of attention, having power over other people, um, eating, uh, sexual climax, uh, obviously drugs and alcohol, uh, getting a hard job completed, uh, novel visual or auditory stimuli, seeing something, being someplace you've never been before. Well, if you look at all those things and then you think, what did I use for dopamine before I was tall enough to reach the beer off the counter? You're going to find the oldest drugs in your life. Ooh, and that is good. Those are the hardest ones. <laughs> and you know where, when you were running through that list, um, approval from others, 
Um, yeah. And then food for me at a very young age. Wow. I didn't think about that being a dopamine release that making other people happy like that. It's interesting. Wow. So, you know, AA's concept of character defect. I've never liked that term. Yeah. I don't know the concept. I didn't do AA. So what is the concept? There, there's an idea in, in the AA big book, um, about, well, okay, now you've stopped drinking. That's good. But let's get to the root of the problem, which oh, is yeah. your character defects that led to your drinking. Okay. Got well, it. Yeah. I actually don't see these things that they list as character defects, as defects of character or personality. What they are to me are they are the earliest drugs. They are the drugs that we attached to that we did not recognize as drugs. And so we have to actually do the same process of deciding to become abstinent from them as we do with anything we've identified as a drug. So, for instance, people-pleasing. We have to make a decision. I'm done with people-pleasing. I'm going to maintain my abstinence from people-pleasing. I'm going to need help with that. If I could do it by myself, I already would have done it. Right. Right. So, how am I going to get help? What am I going to do? And then you can kind of like just start working backwards. And the truth is it gets harder, not easier, because those things have been our good friends keeping us alive, keeping us in good tone, dopamine in our midbrain way longer than alcohol, cocaine, or anything else. Did. And it's not the um, the dopamine, like, so you help someone, you people please, you people please, and that raises your dopamine, you feel happy. And it's not that that keeps you going back. It's the absence of it, right? It's the, it's the crash when it's right. removed. So we, we when wanna, you're... Yeah. We want to use it just enough to feel good, but it doesn't work that way. It goes up in a spike. And then when it spikes, it crashes because the spike was too high. And as soon as the spike starts coming down, we start looking around. All the people who are in law enforcement think drugs cause craving. It's not. It's the drug going away that causes the craving, which is why partial agonist treatment like buprenorphine works so well is, it, yes, it's, it's bringing your dopamine tone up, but it's not causing a spike that crashes. It's causing it to go up and then stay flat. So mm. you don't have the craving. And then, not coincidentally, uh, ironically, a lot of my colleagues will say, I don't like using that medicine. I don't think he's sober when I use the medicine. I want to use very little of it. And so when you underdose it, then you get this waviness to it going away in the day, and you actually get craving. And so people think there's just so much wrong about addiction medicine where people are doing treatments not the best way because we don't understand this as a biological phenomenon the way I think it is. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, like, that was off on a tangent. No, Sorry. I love, no, I'm just listening. <laughs> I'm just absorbing. Um, and that's such an interesting way to look at it, especially for those of us who are listening and you're like, I don't have addiction. I don't have a problem. And then you think back to, to, you know, people pleasing, just using that small example. And I, I wrote a book um, this past year. And one of the big things I talk about in there is people pleasing and everyone 
has that comes to my events or any, they, they mention, oh, people pleasing is my worst one. And so that's really interesting to pull that into this context that um, we're experiencing this on so many levels. Um, let's talk a little bit about what is recovery and, and what about recovery works and what doesn't like traditional recovery is as we're, we know it. Well, I'm not sure I know what recovery is. I have my truth about that, but I don't want to claim that I have some universal truth about it. And uh, there are a lot of definitions of recovery. The, the one I like the best though is personal change sufficient to bring about the cessation of whatever you want to say it is, what are your attachment to whatever. Now you might say, well, gee, that sounds a lot like spirituality, or that sounds because it's basically taken from um, uh, William James's definition of spirituality, or it sounds very Buddhist and it, it, I can't make anything up. There, I'm not <laughs> smart enough to come up with something that 2,500 years of Buddhism hasn't come up with. And I, I just think it's a, it's, there's no there, there, you don't, get, you're not recovered. You're not, it's a journey. Um, it's constant change. I spoke to someone whose recovery I greatly respect just yesterday. She's in her seventies and she was telling me a story from when she was six, when her grandmother taught her what to do with a bad dream. And I said, and I knew she was a very big fan of Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist uh, teacher. And I said, well, you know, my mentor learned that same lesson from Thich Nhat Hanh and when he was in his 60s. And he taught me when I was in my 40s. And you just remembered it in your 70s. And you learned it when you were six. And so it's not there's nothing new about it. And I think we have it all in us. We have everything mm -hmm. we need to be in recovery. There are some people who haven't made it yet. And if you just look at the AA paradigm of, you know, you come and you do the 12 steps and it should work. That's only about 5% of people. If you look at their statistics, about 5% of people walk into an AA meeting and are still going at the end of a year. And they would say that those people were constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Those are the words from the big book. And I have a lot of colleagues who look at that and say, well, that's because there's something wrong with their cortex. They're not thinking right. For me, that constitutional inability to be honest about what I'm doing, what I'm feeling, what's good and bad for me is because of that midbrain. Because I have treated so many people who told me recovery is stupid, AA is stupid, the judge is wrong, my wife is nuts, my boss is an ass. And then they get on the right medicine and they go, oh, AA has changed a lot. It's not stupid anymore. Or, gee, that, that person is right. But So I think our constitutional incapability is there for some of us, and it comes from genetics, but we live in a marvelous time when no one needs to die of addiction anymore. We mm -hmm. could really 
if we had enough sophisticated medical understanding of this, we could really help everybody who couldn't on their own get to recovery to get to recovery. Unfortunately, our system isn't built that way. And I haven't been able to change it. Not yet. I didn't answer your question. I'm sorry. You did. No, you did. You did. You, you Not yet. You have not been able to change it. But in your yeah. lifetime, in the next 30 years, your mission is to change the way, well, basically to get rid of addiction in America. And Well, if we yeah, had, I don't think we can get rid of it, but make it not a problem. Make it not a problem. Um, yeah. And to do that, it has to to start. Well, where do you think it has to start? Let's let's start there. Where, <clears throat> what is step one? What is step one of our twelve steps of ending addiction? All right, <laughs> I think the first step, in, and this is my, I've, and, and you're going to laugh when I finish this. I'm, the first step is creating a system of addiction treatment that is so fast, so inexpensive, and so good that no one would want to use another system. Hmm. Now, yeah. you'd probably say, well, you can't do that. I actually did do that. And then I sold it. And it was a mistake. <sighs> and I thought we were selling to be turned into a national outpatient treatment system. And the company that bought us was an inpatient long-term residential company that said, they knew there were a dinosaur and they knew we had the new way and they, they were, they, they knew they were going to go shut you up. Well, may, I'm not going to say that, but if we didn't turn into a national chain, <laughs> Oh no. So, wow. so in the meantime, I, I know how to do it, but, um, the last three or four years since then, no one's wanted to know. And so I've gone from, Hey, I'll sell this to, Hey, will you pay me? And I'll show you how to, I just want to give it away. And nobody <laughs> Let wants it. Let me just it. tell you. I'll just tell you how to do it. Nobody wants it. And, um, so like, I'll, you, I know you follow me on medium and it's like, I've, I've written pretty much all of it out there. I mean, the books are on Amazon. It's all out there. And, um, but nobody wants it. And, and that, it makes me wonder there must be a step zero before step one, because we have to get past our willingness to live with this crap. Why are we not so sick and tired of all these people dying of something they don't have to die of? Why are we not sick and tired of all these people in pain, all these families destroyed when <clears throat> we could end all the problems that stem from addiction. So now I think that's the first step because the treatment center part, nobody wants it. Mm. Uh, so we have to get societal denial. And yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's got to be like grassroots, all the, the people that are in recovery and, and, and the families and, and the stigma, all of that has to, and, and I think there's a, do you think there's a slight movement toward removing the stigma that maybe will open the door for I think for this? we were on our way. I was very, the last 10 years, I was very enthused by ASAM coming up. ASAM is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Created a new, a new definition of addiction where it saw addiction as a primary brain, basically a physical problem that was, that was possible to be treated. 
I watched it evolve. I watched it get published. I watched the, I don't know how, it's not the, it's not like, you know, on the defense, we talk about the defense industrial complex Mm -hmm. and well, there is a academic government treatment complex where there are people who work in the federal government who then go to treatment industry, then back to the federal government, to academia. Everyone has to believe the same thing out of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So that if you tried to publish something that went against the the DSM, you couldn't get it past a referee from NIH. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get a grant. You couldn't get your study funded. If you did your study with your own money, you couldn't get the paper published. And so there's this kind of um, system that just doesn't allow a new thought. And in that system, addiction isn't addiction. It is substance use disorder. And the first use is voluntary. And so we're stuck with everyone believing that you have to go intend to get sick, go get sick, then we can help you. And and so I've seen, I was really enthused that ASAM changed that paradigm, but they got a lot of pressure from the federal government, all those people working in NIH who I think that unconsciously they probably realized that if ASAM's new definition was right, then I was right, and we are going to be able to get rid of this thing. And there's thousands of jobs and billions of dollars being spent on this a year, and that would all go away. And so I, there's no no malice. I'm not I'm not suggesting any right. malice. Just just mammals being mammals and making sure they have food on their table. And so there was a lot of pressure. And ASAM just this past year took out all the important words from their definition. And so I think I was really I was really pumped. I was really, yeah, convinced. And now in this last year, I, I think, no, I think actually we're kind of going backwards for the last year. Wow. Wow. And, That's um, so I'm a little bit more discouraged now. That's a lot. And it, it's totally believable. No, I mean, totally believable. I mean, if you think, if, if you cure, you know, cure this or make it mm-hmm. from day one, you know, it's educate from day one. We know um, what we're predisposed to. And we know th- that our first taste of whatever will give us, I mean, if you educate people and then something can be done about it. Yeah. That's going to like shut down a lot of industries. That's going to, but yeah. what will it, it's so, it's so narrow minded because what would happen if we had a world where people had a, felt that they had a choice and they weren't spending their time addicted Mm -hmm. i mean when you're an addict you are just reeling you are not your you yes you are not your best self you you are down on yourself like gosh if we elevated everyone to a level it would heighten the entire world and that is that is discouraging like that is really discouraging imagine politics if people didn't feel the need to be in power right Um, imagine (laughs) Uh, police, imagine jail guards, imagine all the people 
who who walk around saying, I don't have addiction. I'm not some druggie. But they're getting off on little bits of power over other right. people. Other types of addiction. Imagine other types if, of yeah. Yeah. Addiction just with a, a drug that no one's recognizing as a drug. If addiction went away, not drug use, not drugs, we're never going to get rid of drugs. We have, we've had drugs since before we've had society. We've, you know, monkeys use overripe <laughs> peaches. I mean, they'll get the alcohol out of overripe fruit. You don't need humans to have drug use. You you'll, will always have drugs and we'll always have drug use. The thing to get rid of, though, is the attachment, that spike and crash, and that need to go get the next one and cause the spike and crash. And when that, that need comes on us, it's, it is with the power of a survival drive. The midbrain isn't there to make us enjoy cocaine. It's there to keep us alive. And so when dopamine's low and we have that, I got to go get a hamburger or I got to go get a pizza, or I got to go get some cocaine, whatever it is, the outside person's looking at us and saying, why is he killing himself with that stuff? My midbrain's saying, if you don't do this right now, you're going to die. Yeah. I've, there's a question people always ask in my field. It's, why would anyone in their right mind do that? And the answer, the wrong answer is always the one given. The answer is, He's obviously not in his right mind. And that's the only wrong answer. The right answer is to understand that, no, he isn't in his right mind. And it does make sense. And you have to understand what situations make it make sense and why I would need to do that, even though it's going to kill me in 10 years or two years or eight weeks, is because my midbrain has a survival drive that tells me I'm going to die sooner if I don't do it. If we understood that and started treating that instead of the use, we really would be rid of not only addiction that bothers us, we'd be rid of the addiction we don't even realize is affecting our lives. Right. The ones that the people that are putting um, labels on others and, and isolating this to alcohol and drugs are using those addictions like power and, and keeping people below them and um, oppression. And it's such a bigger problem. Oh my gosh. Wow. wow. I, I, I wrote a little story in medium on medium called imagine. And, um, if you can look that up, it just, I don't want to, I, I don't want to go into it because I don't want to get into politics, but, um, that's, it, it was a story about, um, a little boy who grows up with addiction, but because his family member has alcoholism. He avoids alcohol and drugs and what happens. And just, it's so the, the implications for us in society are so huge. That, um, and I think that's where, it, I think that's where we are stuck right now mm -hmm. is we were at the cusp of seeing it. And as a society, we unconsciously saw it and we backed up and we just decided we're not going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you raise an interesting point generationally. I mean, you, you hear all sorts of stories or like you, you grew up in a household that was super abusive or emotionally abusive. And so you see that and you don't do it and then you take it and put it into another box. And then you've got that in your life. It's the same 
same addiction, the same thing, different substance. And so like for me, the things that happened in my childhood, I'm like, never with my children, never. And I'm not doing those things, but I'm doing other messed up things because it's it's this genetic and, and, and fe- I guess phenotype, is that the right word? Like um, mm-hmm. expression of it. And so let's talk about the genetic component and because um, I think that you explain it really well. I'm, I'm, I'm a psychology dropout. I made it. They got me talking about genotype, phenotype. And I was like, I don't, this is too much. I'm out. <laughs> so, so simplify it for me, doctor. <laughs> so if, if you recognize that, that dopamine tone is what makes us feel well enough to have tiny little attachments to enjoyable, normal things like a fresh apple, a beautiful sunset being with a friend. And then low tone is what makes us need to get an increased tone so that we go find something that will increase tone like cocaine, alcohol, a pizza. That tone is a, is a result of many, many different biological processes. You have to have dopamine to be produced, The dopamine has to be released. There has to be a dopamine receptor to see it. The dopamine has to go to the receptor and stay there long enough. And then the transmission from the receptor on, the signal has to go on. So every one of those steps has multiple biological inputs, um, proteins that are working. All the enzymes that make dopamine, they're all proteins. They had to come from a genetic source. That's what our genetics do is we have DNA that gives us a blueprint and our cells read the DNA and make proteins from it. And whether they're structural proteins that make up our body or enzymes that change other things, um, it's all proteins. And so the receptor is a protein. The enzymes that made the dopamine is a protein. The, the the protein that sucks the dopamine back out from the receptor is, is a protein. The, um, so the, the moves proteins move the dopamine down through the thing to be released. All these things have separate genetic components. And you could have a mutation that makes that enzyme not work as well or work too well. So it's an enzyme that breaks down dopamine and it works 10% over time you're walking around with not as much dopamine as you would have had otherwise. And if we block that enzyme, your dopamine tone can come back up. If you don't make enough dopamine, because there's an an enzyme that gets in the way of you making dopamine, um, we could give you another another precursor. Like the enzyme I'm talking about doesn't make dopamine directly. It makes a precursor to dopamine and we could give you that precursor and then you don't need the enzyme as much anymore. And now you have as much dopamine as you need. And so if if you understand not about drugs and alcohol, so when you talk about to most other doctors, you talk about the genetics of addiction, they're talking about the genetics of alcohol metabolism or um, the genetics of, of whether you, you break down cocaine fast or something like that. And I'm talking not about the genetics of drugs, but the genetics of, the underlying disorder. And if you understand it as an underlying primary disorder, then you can see those genetics. But if you, if you believe like NIDA does, National Institutes Drug Abuse, that the first use is voluntary, 
why would you look at genetics that existed before the first use mm. of drug? Because there was nothing wrong with the person to begin with. There's a great study by these two guys, Shedler and Block, back in the 70s. They looked at five-year-olds who had never used a drug, and they could predict who, who they could predict. Actually, they, they ended up predicting two things. Those who never, ever, ever would use a drug and those who use drugs too much, and they were the same group. And wow. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard that. Um, there's an old, it's, I'm, I'm probably old enough, you to, you're too young to have heard this, but there, there was an old joke that when, when I was a kid, it was like, okay, who would you rather run your country? A elderly drunk who's, who's gone bankrupt and gotten kicked out of government a couple of times and caused one of the worst military disasters in his country's history or uh, a young, vibrant vegetarian who doesn't smoke and uh, loves animals and children. And then you realize they were talking about Churchill and Hitler. And so what Shedler and Block found out was that there was a kind of a attachment to they, well, they didn't know about dopamine back then, but if you look at the phenotype they were identifying, whether you get the dopamine from being better than everyone else because I'm perfect and I don't use drugs, or I get it from drinking too much, it's the same thing. And I got it from both because I was always like, <laughs> I don't do drugs. But right. I drink a whole hell of a lot. Right. You know, so I was getting both both hits of dopamine. <laughs> right. Wow. Well, yeah. all those, I mean, I when I first, you know, started in this field, the field was just filled with AA old timers. Because that's all that that's who did addiction treatment. And I was appalled kind of by the level of judgment of everyone else. And it was almost like, well, look, I'm telling you how to do this. It worked for me. It'll work for you. If you don't do it this way, something wrong with you besides just this addiction that we're willing to treat. And if you don't listen to me, now you have a personality disorder. Yes. And um, <laughs> it was like so pejorative, everything. And, and now I look back on those and I was like, oh, yeah, that guy was getting high. He was sitting in rounds, sober getting high on beating up the patient, you know? Right. Wow. Right. And we couldn't see it. <laughs> That's why there's the use. We're back to the beginning where you said, what's the difference between sober and abstinent mm -hmm. is sober. You don't go around beating other people up to feel better. Mm. I'm just going to sit on that one for just a minute. Okay. All right. Um, I don't even know where to go. I don't, I don't even usually Especially take when notes. they pay you. Yes, right. When we yeah, give you I'm money, I'm patient. I'm paying you, and you're beating me up. Yeah, right. So I don't even usually take notes before a podcast. I I took notes before Tony Hawk because I didn't want to screw it up, and I took notes on you because there was so much good stuff I've um, been hearing and reading about you know from from your your outlets. So, um, one of the things that I thought was really powerful is you said what we're doing now in addiction therapy is focusing, and we, we've touched on this a little bit, focusing on the individual, but focusing on the effects and that we're not going far enough back. And I, I thought that was yeah. really interesting. And, and this kind of ties in to what you say, like they'll, they'll go back to the first shot of, of heroin. 
like there, there it is. There's the cause, but it's, it's not that because it goes all the way back to when we were right kids, babies. Right. You know what the average person who took heroin would feel <laughs> terrible. They really? get nauseated. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it's, you, this is going to blow some people's minds. Normal mammals don't like drugs. Uh, normal mammals, if you raise, you give them a drug and they're normal dopamine tone, they get too much dopamine tone and that feels like OCD. And I don't know anyone who would volunteer to feel like OCD. Uh, it's a terribly dysphoric feeling. And so we use these things to lift dopamine for, no, for people who don't have illness. You know, I feel a little low. I need a drink after a hard day. I feel a little bit better, unwind. All these common tropes you hear in our culture. But when you're feeling good and you somebody raises your dopamine suddenly with cocaine or you you don't feel good. And so if you took you have a normal person a shot of heroin, what happens is they'd get a little nauseated and they'd go to sleep. About 10% of the population that takes an opiate gets energy. Only 10%. 90% mm-hmm. get nauseated and take a nap. There's just not much rewarding about getting nauseated and taking a nap. There's no reason to do that twice, except I'm in terrible <laughs> right. pain. And this is the only thing that works. And then when the pain goes away, I have no trouble stopping because there's no reason to do this. I don't want to be nauseated and sleeping. I want to go of my life. But if you don't have enough dopamine and you don't release enough dopamine and an opiate causes dopamine relief release, and now I have enough dopamine and the sky is blue and I can hear the birds chirping and I can think straight and I remember what you're saying to me and I can concentrate and I feel comfortable in my skin for the first time in my life. There's a hell of a lot of reason to do that more than once. Mm. So it isn't, the drug, it's what we were before we took the drug. The drug isn't the agent that causes addiction. It's the, it would be like, you could have great seeds. You drop them on concrete, they're not going to grow into a tree. There has to be fertile soil. And yes, some drugs are better seeds than other drugs, but it's really more about the soil than the seeds. So when you have those unicorns who can just have a drink and get, go about their day, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. they don't they, like they have enough dopamine to say, oh, well, <clears throat> three drinks is going to make me feel like garbage. Where yeah. for me, if I have one drink, it's like, let's have 12 and eat pizza. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. But not do cocaine because I don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's funny about cocaine is that it actually doesn't work real well in a lot of people unless they do something to release dopamine. So if you smoke cigarettes, that releases dopamine. If you take an amphetamine, that releases dopamine. If you drink, that releases dopamine. Opiates release dopamine. Cocaine doesn't first release dopamine. It stops the reuptake of dopamine. So if you're not releasing enough dopamine, there's not enough dopamine there for cocaine to block its reuptake. Mm. 
And so you, it was a very common, I trained in the eighties. I started training in the eighties. So cocaine was a big deal and everybody was asking about cocaine. So when I'd ask people about cocaine, I, I was weird. I got different answers because um, I would ask different questions. And so if you ask people, how much cocaine do you use? They'll tell you. But if you say, why do you use it? I'll say, oh, well, it you know, makes me high. And does it make you high by itself? You'll get a vanishingly smaller group of people who say, oh, yeah, I'll use it all by itself with nothing else. And most people who used cocaine needed to drink first in order for it to work or needed to take an opiate with a speedball or uh, was smoking or did something else to cause enough dopamine release for cocaine to work. And they would use cocaine as an augmenter of the high they already had from the other thing. And, but it's amazing. It's like, it's been, I don't know, since we're now in the, it's been 40 years and uh, we still haven't, as a, as a group, as a field, we still haven't figured it out that cocaine's not like other drugs. It's a unique, Mm. it has a unique pathway and, and it tells you so much about the brain when you ask people the right questions. And when you don't ask them the right questions, it sends you on terrible directions and th- that make you pick the wrong medications to use. And um, mm. so anyway, I'm sorry. Another tangent. Yeah. No, I'm don't sorry. be sorry. It's not not sure. I don't mean you got me off. I went off. <laughs> no, I always have. This is an addict joke. Only someone who's, you know, addicted to things would think it's funny. But I always said that. Um, the reason I never did cocaine is because number one, I knew I would like it. It would make me super productive and make me skinny. So then I would enjoy it too much. And then I would have to go to rehab and, but rehab's not so bad because then you get 30 days of vacation and everyone would be so proud of me for, for overcoming this. <laughs> so I was like, mm-hmm. then I guess so I can, you know, do cocaine. Then everyone will be proud of me and I'll be skinny, you know, but that's, it's just another layer of my personality problem. My character defects soured my character defects. You have um, <laughs> Right. No, 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 none, no character defects. Mm-hmm. Okay. So probably 10,000 people will hear this episode. So you've got 10,000 people. You want them to know what? What do you want them to walk away from? And next time they're at a party and they say, you know, I heard this podcast where this guy, Howard Wetzman said, and and how do we get word out about everything you just talked about? Like, how do we get more people to understand? And we start this grassroots thing that is clearly necessary because the government is going to continue to move us backwards. Yeah. Addiction isn't, even though I've been calling it an illness, that's just a, a minor approximation of, of it. Biology is messy. The thing to understand is none of the words we use matter. What matters is the process. And we don't, I don't care whether, I don't care what you call yourself. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you use. I don't care what your midbrain is attached to. If you're happy, that's terrific. If there's something you want to change, that's good too. And I just think that what we have to look at addiction as is the inability to change. It's, It's like you were saying, Meredith, we're enslaved to 
this thing. We're stuck. You can call it attachment. You can call it stuck. You, you can call it slavery. Um, you can look at it as the inability to change. And what recovery is, is the freedom to change, to become what you want to be, to move freely. And what I think all addiction treatment should be aimed at is in this moment, what do you want to change? What's stopping you? And how are we going to overcome that? And what I've seen in addiction treatment is that we've, we're always swinging to the fence. You come into rehab, you're fresh in off the street. Stuff's not even out of your system yet. And they're talking about when you're going to be in 12-step recovery and you're going to be sponsoring people and you're going to have such a good life helping people and you're going to feel so good. And you're thinking, bullshit. I just, you know, want to get a nap. I just want to eat. I just get, I'd like to leave. And, and you, um, we're just off the mark of where people are. And one of the things that needs to change is we need to stop swinging for the fence and just get the next little step. What do you want to change today? Boom, done. Now we did that in 10 minutes. Now what do you want to change? Great. We did that in 15 minutes. We've still got 20 minutes of our session left. Let's change something else. And we keep going. And then we should teach that person how to keep that process going. And just imagine where we could get. And some of that's medical because some people can't enter that process of change until we get them the right medicine. That's where the genetics comes in and, and the, the medicine part. Those are the people that I'm obviously most interested in because they're the ones who need me. But um, I that's what I'd like everyone to, to go away with is not be stuck on names and terms and words, but just look at that process. And it's no different when you have addiction and when you don't have addiction, except that when you have this illness, maybe you're going to need help of another kind to get to the place where you can drive your own change. I love it. I love it. So where can people find you on medium.com? I believe your addiction doc is that correct? Well, what is it on? Yeah, I don't oh, know. I'll it's Howard Wetzman on Medium, I think. I, okay. I don't know. On Twitter, it's it's Addiction Doc MD. Addiction and, Doc MD. Um, okay. Yeah. And then, I'll post um, the link to your Medium, but uh, just in case okay. anyone was listening. I, I think probably you use my own name. Did um, you? I'm going to look it up right yeah. now. That's like a lot of people probably don't do that on on an interview, but I'm going to do that because I want to make sure it it is. It is Addiction Doc MD on Medium as well. So, okay. There you go. Okay. You learn something every day. I must day, have done Howard. it through Twitter. I, yes, I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I try. Probably. You can sign up with Twitter. So, that's probably why. That's probably cool. what I did. Yeah. And, um, well, this was, yeah. And then genedsystems.com is the, is the education company where I'm trying, we were going to build a, an engine where people could put up their 23andMe data and learn about their genetics, not only about addiction, but other things. And then, of course, COVID 19 derailed that. Like it derailed everything else. And um, so it, lucky for everybody else, it's free now. It's It was going to be subscription. Now it's free for the der- der- remainder of the crisis because we're not producing something once a week. But uh, so um, there's not much up there now. But if somebody wants to use their data and see insights about addiction, they can. Oh, very cool. I have that data. You want to play with mine? <laughs> 
sure you go go you can you can go do it it's, it's oh, free today and go, go okay. upload it and you can look at we looked at um mthfr the thing that has to do with whether you produce dopamine how much dopamine you produce um <clears throat> and i think we did comt one of the enzymes that break down dopamine and maybe we did the dope one of the dopamine receptors i'm not sure and then we we did the the, the receptor that COVID-19 uses to get into the body. And then things got so busy for us as a lab that we just, we couldn't keep up with content. And so we took all the, the money off of it. And yeah. We'll start it up again at some point. Oh, very good. Okay. Well, I will post a link up to that. Everyone go follow Howard on, on Twitter and on Medium and check out, I'll post the link to genedsystems.com. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Great. Well, thank you for this. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.